Hey murder lovers, this is Fatina, and you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. Episode 124. Hey everyone, welcome back. Thanks for sticking along on this ride with me. I am excited to do this episode, and I am excited to do a quote-unquote solo debut. I still don't know what the future of the podcast is, whether I'm going to continue it all by myself, or if I am going to um, be bringing in different guests to fill in, or if eventually we'll be lucky enough to find another permanent uh, co-host for this. So thank you for all the friends that reached out and listeners that reached out and said, hey, if you're looking for someone, count on me. So that was great um, to feel that support. It's a big community and I appreciate all of it. I've reached back out to a couple of you. I'm definitely thinking about whether um, the schedules and how we're going to do if different people want to come in. We might, what I'm thinking so far is uh, we might have a, a rotating guest spot for people so they can come in and tell me a story or I can tell them a story and we'll see where the future goes from there. But nothing is set in stone just yet, uh, but I'm excited about where it goes. For today's episode, what I'm going to do, it um, took me a little bit of time to finally land on it, but what I decided was that I'm going to do a where are they now episode. So as I was looking through all of our episode lists list and trying to figure out what we've done already and what needed to be covered. And then also I was looking through some messages that we've gotten. I've gotten questions on, hey, let us know when there's an update on this case. Let us know what happens with this one or the sentencing on this and or another. So I am going to do today an update, a where are they now episode for cases on one through 50 of the first 50 episodes that we've covered. I didn't want to cram too many cases into one episode just so that we'd have time to discuss it and that I can give you the best update that I can on each case. So I will um, give you as much as I can, as much as I discovered as I went through 1 through 50 to try to figure out what updates there are. So the first update is our first, our very first case that we covered on Luca Magnata. So Luca Magnata, uh, obviously it was a very heavy and horrendous case that came out of Canada. It was the very first case that we had on our podcast. And unbeknownst to us, a couple months later, after releasing that and starting this podcast, Netflix released that they would be doing a documentary on it. So that documentary, if you haven't watched it already, run, go watch it. It's called Don't Fuck With Cats. It definitely um, shed a spotlight on internet sleuths and the power that the internet has to finding a potential killer um, or someone that is a danger to society in general, but just how just a couple people on the internet can go so far, right? So after Netflix released that documentary, we did our own update review of that documentary. There's a couple things that I think they omitted or they just didn't um, put in because of the type of content that they wanted to release. But there is a couple updates on the case or just a couple things to notice. So um, Luca Magnata, he is still sitting in prison. 
So no worries there. He has not been released yet. He's actually not eligible for parole until 2034. But meanwhile, there's been a couple updates for his prison life. He is now married. He married an inmate in his prison. And right after the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic started, his mom petitioned the courts to have him released based on concerns for his health and safety um, for COVID-19. That petition was denied. So he, the court said, no, we're not releasing him, danger to society. And after that, he continued to file other things to try and either reduce his sentence, get out of jail, or he even filed a motion to try and be moved to a medium security prison. Right now he is at a higher level one and they denied that as well. He also filed grievances against the court for, I believe, his treatment um, that he wasn't getting I guess, a special treatment as he wanted. Um, But just for everyone's peace of mind, Luca Magnata still sits in prison till this day. And like I said, he was not, he is not going to be eligible for parole until 2034. So still has some time to file grievances and whatnot. But I think the court um, takes them because they have to, and they'll review them as they come in. But that one for Luca Magnata, there's still one motion pending, but he still sits in prison till this day. The second update that I have for you is on episode number four, the one with the not so jolly Joseph. So this is a case that came out of uh, India and she was initially accused and arrested for murders of, for six different murders. This is one where she is accused of poisoning six different people, including children and Um, So a couple updates on that. She was denied bail. And I believe we ran the story in October of 2019. And she was arrested, officially arrested on November 2nd, 2019. So a couple, um, couple weeks after we ran the episode, she was arrested and she was denied bail. She is still sitting in jail right now, awaiting trial. Um, She's in the Kozikodi District Jail. Sorry if I pronounced that incorrectly, but she's still sitting there awaiting trial. In early 2020, in February of 2020, she attempted self-harm. She used a sharp instrument within her jail cell. There were four other inmates in there with her. She harmed her left wrist And it was not life-threatening, but they did have to take her into the hospital for some treatment just to treat the wound, and they put her right back in her jail cell. In August of 2021, while she's sitting in prison, uh, her husband, her most recent husband, officially filed divorce papers, and they were served to her in prison. In those papers, he cited the cruelty uh, and the nature of the crimes that she was being that she had been arrested for. And so that's still, uh, I don't think the divorce is finalized, but we know that she was served with divorce papers. Now, the biggest update on this case is that since we released the episode, the police discovered more evidence that she had planned even more murders. So we know that she had already allegedly killed six people and apparently there was plans set 
that she wanted to kill even more people. I don't know if that was going to be even more family members or people outside of her family. They're keeping those details under wraps. I'm sure that's because of her upcoming trial, but there is supposedly evidence that she was going to try and kill even more people. We don't even know if that is by poisoning or if she was going to, and this is me speculating, but do it by any other means, but her alleged means of killing those six people were through poisoning. So probably safe bet that she was going to try and do the same thing. Now, if she wrote something out saying that she was going to do this, I don't know. I don't know if this is a witness that came forward, maybe some conversations that she had about possible other murders that she was going to take out. So, um, but that is the latest update. She is still awaiting trial. We don't know exactly what she would be facing for the counts of six. If I know more, of course, I'll let you know in like any of these cases, if there's any other updates, I will let you guys know maybe in a future, future, where are they now episode. All right, moving along to episode number 10, the one with, uh, I think we ended up calling it Bumble Butt, um, the one with Bumble Butt Kemper or something like that. Um, but this is an update on Ed Kemper. And, and this was a little bit weird, a little bit of a weird one, just because, you know, I, I don't know, with times and, and years, as much as they've flown by recently, it's hard to, for me, put in perspective, like, hey, this person might still actually be alive and be in jail. And that's exactly the case for Ed Kemper. So we know that he was sentenced to life. A couple updates on him. In 1989, uh, we know that he started the Blind Project, where he was working for a nonprofit, helping reading or doing the audio for audiobooks. And he had to stop that in 2015 due to a stroke that he had left him with the inability to do that. So as of 2022, he's still alive. He's still in prison. And he is currently 73 years old, and he's still serving his time in California. So I just wanted to give you that update. Just put a couple things in perspective that Ed Kemper, um, you know, this infamous murderer, is still alive and is still in prison. All right, so moving right along to case number 15 for Kathleen Fulbig. This is one where she was accused and sentenced for the murders of her four young children. This were this was toddlers, um, Caleb, Patrick, Sarah, and Laura. And she was accused and sentenced for the murder of them. Um, I believe I w it was allegedly for suffocating them. It, they were no more than a couple years apart. So in March of 2021, in March of 2021, there was a petition signed by 90 scientists that included science advocates, medical experts that were requesting a pardon and her immediate release. Among those who signed were two Nobel laureates, two Australians of the Year, former chief scientist and president of Australian Academy of Science. Professor John Shine, who commented, Given the scientific and medical evidence that now exists in this case, signing this petition was the right thing to do. The judges rejected that notion and cited that the greater weight of the circumstantial evidence presented at trial would stand. Now, 
what was discovered by scientists and the further research that was done into not only this case, but into the victims, the, the young toddlers that passed away in this, was groundbreaking, to say the least. Now, what they discovered was that Sarah and Laura, the two girls, had a variant gene called CALM2, which is a Calmodillon variant. Now, that means nothing to me. But what it is, it's a gene that is very specific to these children because the mom is a carrier of the gene that mutated and it can cause sudden cardiac death while asleep. And from what I read, I believe is from when you're asleep, your heart rate goes down. And if you have any other underlying issues, which the two girls did have an infection or some kind of illness at that time when they passed away prior to them passing away, that mixed with this gene that they had that already made them predisposed to this condition, it was the catalyst. This is what made them possibly pass away while they were asleep. Caleb and Patrick, the two boys, they didn't carry the same gene as the girls, but they carried a different one called BSN which is a gene shown to cause early onset lethal epilepsy and that has only been tested and seen in mice so far. But the scientists felt that that was enough evidence to show that there was reasonable doubt for Kathleen not killing her kids herself and that they had these underlying medical issues and were predisposed to having these medical conditions because of their genes. She is currently 54. She is still sitting in prison and she will not be eligible for parole on her 40-year sentence for another six years. Scientists that signed this petition feel very strongly about the fact that they could, at the very least, have them have the courts reopen this case and see if there's any evidence of reasonable doubt that they could shine upon this case for Kathleen Fulbig. They are helping her defense, even though she's already been convicted, but they're trying to see if they can overturn that decision. I'll keep you updated as anything comes. As we know, in any court proceedings or anything about overturning a case or reviewing something like this big for four murders can take a long time. So I don't know if that'll come before her six years um, before she can get parole or after, but as we know more, I'll let you know. I just find that it's very interesting that that th there was these medical predispositions. Um, the court did cite, though, that due, like I said, to the circumstantial evidence being so heavy against her, and um, her defense is saying that the court picked out very small pieces of her journals that had over 5,000 words um, that looked incriminating to her. If I remember right, she wrote um, different things about the kids and how they were going to die or the situation about how she wanted them not be part of her life or something like that. Probably I'm misquoting, but um, they, the defense is citing that. I don't know yet. I, you know, She had her day in court, but this evidence um, could reopen it or at least have them relook at the case. So the next one is case number 16 that we covered, episode number 16 with Monty Russell. He was a 
serial killer and rapist who had committed his first rape by the age of 14. And when he was charged and convicted, he was charged with 12 rapes and five murders. And this was all by his 19th birthday. And all of his crimes happen in the span of, at least the murders happen within the span of one year. So he was one of the murders that was spotlighted in Mindhunter, the series. So he is still alive. He is 63 years old. He's currently still incarcerated at the Pocahontas State Correctional Center in Virginia. So uh, again, that's just one of those cases like Ed Kemper that for some reason in the back of my mind, I don't even think I'm like, oh, it's so long ago, probably dead or you know, probably just died of old age and whatnot. But no, he's still alive and kicking and he's still incarcerated. So episode number 17 um, was one where we had Aaron Marginick come on to the podcast, to the episode and talk about um, her brother's passing and what her and her family are trying to do to get Taylor's law passed. If you haven't listened to that episode, please go back and do so. Um, This is a family that continues to fight for um, reform and for a new law to be passed here in Oregon. So I'm going to read you the latest update from Taylor's Law Facebook page. This was posted just two months ago. And it says, Hello, Taylor's Law supporters. We are still here, still fighting to save our loved ones. Unfortunately, the last few years have only proven that fentanyl and opioids are a huge issue. We're now seeing overdose related to fentanyl and illicit pills at an extremely high rate, even more than when Taylor passed in 2017. We wanted to give an update. We will be fighting to get a hearing for the February 2023 session. We have a work group who is meeting this month to look at the language and get a draft submitted to the legislator. How can you help? Please write letters, emails, make phone calls to your local legislator asking them to support Taylor's Law, an overdose homicide law. We want to prevent more loved ones from dying from this. Thank you for your continued support over the years. We will need a big wave of support coming up. So tie your laces. We're hitting the ground running again. Taylor's family. So again, if you haven't listened to that episode, please go do so. Um, Erin is uh, Taylor's sister who um, is and and her fate and his family um, continues to fight to have this this law passed. If you haven't already, um, go follow their Facebook page. They continue to do updates and keep everyone involved in what's going on and what they're in the efforts that they're trying to put forth to make this thing happen, to make this law happen. Episode 21 was Jody Arias. Um, So on this one, Jody just does not quit. She has filed several appeals. Um, One was in October of 2017. That one was delayed. In October of 2019, she filed another motion citing public perspectives and prosecutor misconduct leading to an unfair trial and a biased jury. And that was denied. In March, on March 24th, 2020, so this is the latest update on Jody Arias. Um, she filed uh, with the State Court of Appeals. 
they upheld the verdict. And she filed a lawsuit against the her then lawyer, Kirk Nurmi. And Kirk wrote a tell-all book that's called Trapped with Miss Arius. He gave up his license right after this book came out and claimed that he wanted to leave the past behind. Um, she is currently still selling her art and selling it on eBay. So while she's in prison, she is painting things and selling them. Now, because it's something that she started pre-incarceration or pre-sentencing, I'm sorry, um, she's allowed to do this. Now, I believe based on her sales, her net worth right now just on art sales is currently one to five million dollars, somewhere in that range. But so Jody Arias, I don't know what she's going to do with that money, but she's probably using that towards her defense uh, or filing appeals for the court. Episode 28 was the one where we covered the House of 200 Demons, um, a.k.a. the Ammon House. Um, this is a house in Gary, Indiana. I remember I had just come back from Gary, Indiana when we did this episode. And so a quick update on that one. Netflix has officially purchased the rights to make a movie about it. So they are going to do a movie about it. The family is involved in the process. And I believe they're in the process right now of doing the casting for it. But I don't know if it's going to be true to the story that the family told or if they're going to build it up a little bit because it's Netflix. But I'm excited to see it. I mean, I'm down for any scary movie. So I don't know if it's going to be a documentary type thing or if it's going to be a movie type thing. So stay tuned because I'm sure that they'll release a date soon on that. They're going to, uh, uh, I'm sure they're going to build this up. I know this is something that I'll definitely want to watch out for. Episode number 32. This is the one with the ultimate catfish. So Miss Hadley had an ex-boyfriend, Ian Diaz, and Ian Diaz had remarried or got married to Angela Angela Diaz, and if I remember right, they had a dispute over a condo after Miss Hadley and Mr. Diaz had split, and in order to get back to her, both Ian and Angela made up this whole story about Miss Hadley putting up a rape fantasy post on Craigslist. They cooked up this whole story that she had been sending them harassing emails, that they had been setting up Craigslist ads saying that they wanted someone to come over to their house and, you know, uh, fulfill this rape fantasy that they had. She, if you remember, she had, Miss Hadley was arrested on these allegations and spent time in jail because of it. Ultimately, the actual truth came out that these people were setting her up for that and she was released from jail and all of her charges were overturned and she was completely exonerated. She is living a very successful life in New York as a marketer. Now, for the Diaz family, for um, Angela and Ian, Ian was recently, in May of 2021, indicted on charges of cybersecurity and perjury. So if he's convicted, he might face the maximum penalty of up to five years on each count. So that is the latest update on that. For 
episode number 35, we covered the Turpin House of Horror. So this was a family in California. And I'm sure as I'm talking about it, it's ringing bells. A family, I believe they had 13 kids in the house that were not being given proper um, care, um, not being fed correctly. They were not given education. They were withheld from the outside world. Um, and eventually one of the, I believe it was the second oldest girl, um, escaped from her house and one night and, and called the police and eventually the police came in and quote unquote rescued all of the kids. And I say that, um, because the update on this, if you haven't already, there is an, a 2020 episode on this family and the escape of the girl and how she rescued her family. But there, that documentary gives us a little bit of insight of to what happened afterwards. So we know that the parents got sentenced for the mistreatment of their kids and the, and the abuse that the kids suffered there. And after they were rescued, six of the children, so six of the minor children, had to be placed in foster care. There was no other family that could take care of them at that point. So the six younger kids were all placed into foster care. Now, while they were there, they unfortunately suffered from a second bout of abuse. So including sexual, physical, emotional abuse, and what is... The worst part is that they tried reporting it and the foster care agency, according to the kid's lawyer, allegations were ignored. So the abuse continued. A lawyer says that the kids were forced to relive some of their past over and over. They have since been removed from the foster home and they have filed two different lawsuits against the foster care service and the California's Riverside County. One lawsuit on behalf of the four Turpin children um, who are still minors. Zexter is representing the remaining two siblings in the second lawsuit. And the complaints allege that the foster care agency ChildNet Youth and Family Services was negligent in its care of the children, saying that ChildNet was aware that the foster parents were unfit and that had a fire and that they had a prior history of physically and emotionally abusing and neglecting children who had been placed in their care before. But the agency didn't do anything about it and continued to place children in their home. One of the lawsuits says that the foster care agency went against the advice of some of its own employees in placing the Turpin children in the foster home. Now, the six children were there for three years. The lawsuits did not name the foster family by name. They just call them Mr. and Mrs. O. Say that the foster parents and their adult daughters abused the six children that were in their care, included hitting them in the face with sandals, pulling their hair, hitting them with a belt, and striking their heads. Both lawsuits allege that the children were forced to eat excessive amounts of food, eat their own vomit, the lawsuit on behalf of the two siblings alleges that the foster parents told them that they were worthless and should commit suicide and would even suggest how the plaintiffs or the, kill, um, the kids should commit suicide. There were home visits uh, to the foster home 
And oftentimes the mandated reporters uh, were not allowed inside and were told that they had to meet with the children on the outside porch, even though they knew that the foster parents had recording devices outside that were videotaping those visits. So if you ask me if these kids know that they're being recorded, even with someone who is there to check up on them because the fear of them being video recorded and being retaliated against would probably make them not say anything or not be able to speak up. So the foster parents and their daughter were arrested in March of 2021 after a Riverside County Sheriff's Department investigation on the charges of false imprisonment and child cruelty, among others, according to the lawsuits. The children were removed immediately from the home at that point. It's just terrible to hear that's not a good update um, that these kids were subjected to further mistreatment and they were not given the proper care after having to endure what they did with their own family. Um, but then they had to go through, you know, what can potentially be a scary situation of just entering someone else's home. Uh, but you think they would have wanted to take care of kids that were coming from such a terrible situation and they did the complete opposite so their parents their um their biological parents the turpins were sentenced to 25 years each so they're still serving out that sentence but uh, as far as the foster parents i think that's still up in the air they're still going to have a day in court that update is as of 2021 so no updates that I can find as far as any court proceedings for that. So they're probably still awaiting trial on that. I don't have any updates as to whether or not they're out on bail or if they're actually sitting in jail waiting to have their day in trial. Their day in court, sorry. Um, next one is episode 40. This is one that lives rent-free in my head. I think about it all the time. I wish I was... Um, an even better internet sleuth. I wish I was in Georgia for this so I can go knocking on doors and figure this out myself. But this is the case of Tamla Horsford. Uh, she, if you don't remember, um, this was in Forsyth, Georgia. She was a one of the moms that was having a sleepover with other football moms. And they were partying, drinking, I believe they were playing Cards Against Humanity. And then when that wound down, um, allegedly, Tamla went out to the balcony to have one last cigarette before calling it a night. And then no one saw her again till the next morning, allegedly, um, when she was face down on the grass on the ground floor. And they, the police... Um, goes without saying I think did a terrible job of uh, conserving evidence and doing a proper investigation on this because they initially put it off as an accidental death now the biggest update on this is that GBI so the Georgia Bureau of Investigations reopened it I believe I touched on that a little bit on another episode but now the update is that they concluded their inquiry and there would be no charges filed in Tamla's case. 
The GBI largely um, sided with the Forsyth County investigators, concluding that Tamla's death was caused by an accidental death from the balcony. But that's not to say that there weren't any new revelations. So upon their inquiry, there were a couple things that were discovered. Um, nothing, again, nothing that led to any arrest or to any new suspects. Um, but since that investigation happened, a um, couple people left their position. So there was the party attendee, Jose Barrera, who left his uh, position at the uh with law enforcement, and then also the responding officer, Michael Christian. So Jose Barrera had been let go for searches related to Horsford's case. I believe he didn't have the right authority or wasn't in the right department to be looking into that. I think that was known when we did the case, um, but he was also in the middle of another important debate of whether or not he was responsible for moving Tamla's arm from the original position where she would have been so they couldn't conclude whether or not he moved her arm from being 90 degrees up towards her head to side by side where she was originally found and how the coroner found her so some people say um, that he admitted to che checking for a pulse and that's why her arm was moved but he still stands strong in saying that he did not move her arm even to check for a pulse or anything. So that's still up in the air. And so we know he, he's no longer there. And then Mike Christian, in October of 2020, resigned from the uh, department because there was an internal affairs investigation into allegations that he had sent multiple women with whom he was having extramarital affairs with confidential information about the case now he he's saying that women the women that he was having these affairs with um are making up stories about him giving them information um as a way to retaliate against him for cutting off those affairs after he broke up with them and according to one of these women that are coming forth saying that he was giving them information about the case that was exclusive, of course, confidential, um, were Snapchat messages. So we know those are meant to disappear after a certain amount of time unless you screenshot them, right? But she is saying that he sent her pictures of Tamla's body as it was found and calling her, quote-unquote, porch lady, now, um, she's also saying that Christian shared the results of Tamla's toxicology report before it became public and that he had suspicion that the body had been moved prior to the coroner coming to the scene. And a separate ex-girlfriend or one of these women that he was having an affair with um, said that Christian told her that he believed the death was an accident, but doubted that the death was as a was a result of her falling from the balcony based on her injuries. The same ex told GBI that Christian told her that he had discovered calls between Jose Barrera 
and Kalen, which was another of the main detectives on this case, prior to the 911 call from that house, and suspected that Kalen had helped the partygoers come up with a story. And according to this woman, Christian was worried he would go down for the officers who set the scene. Now, if there were calls between Jose Barrera and Kalen, um, there is no records of it that the GBI could find. Actually, what the GBI found was that Barrera's cell phone had no records of any calls from 12 a.m. till 10 a.m., which is well after the 911 call went out. There are screenshots of some of the messages that Christian sent out to one of his extramarital affairs, and they're disturbing. One of them jokes, quote-unquote, about how he would be notifying Tamla's husband about Tamla's death. And it says... There's some stuff at the beginning of the message that's out of context for us, so I don't understand, but this is what the message, the screenshot message says. Well, what kind of slept? Hello, sir. I know we've never met, but I'm here to tell you that your wife and the mother of your six children is dead. Oh, yes. I am happy to report that she was really, really drunk, trip landed face down in the backyard, and either through hyperthermia, positional asphyxia, or aspirated on her own puke, not sure which one. I know you have fun memories. Enjoy corralling these six boys who are now going ape shit. So that is from Christian to one of his ex-girlfriends. On November 19th is when he sent a different message that says, Greetings from racist, cracker, bastard, murder, covering up land. How are you? It's a nice rainy day. Good for digging shallow graves by the roadside. Now, that is a little bit out of context, but what some believe it means, according to Ralph Fernandez, Tamla's family lawyer, believes that Graves is a reference to Michelle Graves, a friend of Tamla's who's been particularly critical to the investigation. Now, he was interviewed by the GBI about these messages, and Christian admitted to sending them, but characterized them as sarcasm and in poor taste. He admitted to sending the messages that were screenshotted, but he denied sending any photos that were tied and confidential from the case. With this case, um, there's still a lot of whispers, and I think people coming, you know, trying to make things make sense. So... Tamla Hartsford's husband's best friend, Stephen Reynolds, said that he thinks the motive might have been sexually motivated. So he claims that two of the couples that were at the sleepover were swingers, and he told GBI that his first thought was that Tamla died after someone had tried to initiate something with her sexually. Both of the couples who were implicated by this statement were interviewed and nothing came of that. There's still a question of where the Xanax came from because their supposedly texts from one 
of the attendees to another the next morning saying, hey, hate to ask you of this, but do you have any more meds you could share? I could really use some right now. Um, it really helped me. So we're not sure where the Xanax came from. I know that was a minimal amount in her in her blood. Um, the biggest thing was the the BAC that was 0.238 in her in her bloodstream. But um, so this is still a mystery as to what really happened to to Tamla. There's been lots of celebrities that have been trying to shed light on it and share the story, like Kim Kardashian and Fifty Cent, that want to get the truth out of what happened really happened in this case for Tamla. So the investigation is still ongoing. Sorry, not the investigation, but the speculation and the trying to figure out who'd really done it. I think right now, officially it's declared an accident, but um, the family believes otherwise. All right, and the last one of one through 50 is gonna be episode 45 for Kip Kinkle. This was a high school student in Oregon who went on a shooting rampage in 1998, uh, killed two students and injured 25. He also killed his parents. So he is currently still serving a life sentence. But for the first time in June of 2021, he actually gave an interview to Huffington Post. And he's quoted saying that he feels tremendous, tremendous shame and guilt. He's 38. Um, like I said, serving a life sentence at the Oregon State Correctional Institution. And he his interview lasted about 20 hours, and this was over the course of 10 months. He said that he felt guilty, not just for what he did as a 15-year-old suffering from then undiagnosed paranoid schizophrenia, but the effect this crime has ad had on other juvenile offenders sentenced to life terms. His case has actually been held up by some of his victims, and by others as a reason to oppose juvenile justice reform in the state. He had not previously given interviews, and he said that he didn't want to do that because he didn't want to further traumatize the victims. He also said that he began to feel that his silence was preventing those offenders from getting a second chance. So this is why eventually he spoke up and did the interview. He has obtained a college degree while being incarcerated, and he still continues to challenge his sentence, um, which was upheld by the state Supreme Court. In March of 2021, his attorneys filed a petition in federal court arguing that his plea was not voluntary and he had been off his meds for several weeks beforehand and that his sentence was unconstitutional. They quoted saying, they're quoted saying, sentencing a juvenile to die in prison because they suffer from a mental illness is a violation of the Eighth Amendment. So in 2019, as part of the of a national effort to reevaluate tough on crime sentences for juveniles, the Oregon legislature passed a measure that to stop automatically referring 15 to 17 year olds to adult court for certain offenses and to ensure that they, were, that they weren't sentenced to life in prison without a chance to seek parole. At the time, there were about a dozen people serving life or life-equivalent terms for crimes committed as juveniles. A month later, lawmakers passed another bill to make clear that the measure was not retroactive. And for this, Kinkle said that he watched the debate in, prison, in the prison library. He also said that he doesn't often consider the possibility of ever being released. 
He said, I don't know, I don't allow myself to spend too much time thinking about that because I think that can actually bring more suffering. So that is the latest on Kip Kinkle. He finally broke the silence and sat down and did an interview for Huffington Post. So that is the update for episodes 1 through 50 and the latest on Where Are They Now? Thanks for coming along on that ride. Now, next up, I am going to thank our newest Patreons. Thanks for joining us. These are all on the Murder Lovers tier. And so a little update on Patreon. Obviously, we've been through a lot of changes. So my apologies for not being up to date on posting on there. I'm going to get back on track on that. I'm working on either some merch or gifts for you guys in the very near future. So be on the lookout for that as well keep sending us suggestions sorry keep sending me suggestions still getting used to it um so if you have any episodes that you would want me to cover or if you have a listener story an episode that you want me to focus on you let me know and it's gonna go to the top of the list if you're on the murder lovers tier so i have um, a couple people to thank and to welcome to the patreons we have brooke thank you brooke We have Kristen. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you. We have Elizabeth. Elizabeth, thank you. Welcome. We have Florencia. Florencia, I I think we're we're actually friends on Facebook now, too. So welcome. Welcome to the Patreons, uh, to the Murder Lover group. And we have Alex. Alex, thank you for joining us on Patreon and being a murder lover. So again, keep an eye out for all those Patreon goodies coming up. I promise to give you some extra content here in the month of September. And if you have any suggestions and you're a Patreon on the Murder Lovers group, we will go put you. I will put you right to the top of the list. Um, see you next week for an update of where are they now for episodes 51 through 100. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you.